I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Swapping artificial sweeteners for sugar was supposed to save calories without sacrificing taste. But is it healthy? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Americans love convenience. They also want their food to taste yummy. As a result, food companies have created lots of ultra-processed options. They appeal to our craving for sweet and salty flavors. Many products are promoted as low-fat or even non-fat. That's a selling point to appeal to health-conscious individuals. But the low-fat food craze is fading as it's become clear it won't make us thinner or healthier. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, is the food on your plate real or fake? In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, one of the revelations from the COVID pandemic is that people can suffer debilitating symptoms long after they've recovered from the acute infection. Long COVID affects tens of millions of people who report long-lasting problems for months or even years after the initial illness. Now, scientists report that other respiratory infections can also cause persistent symptoms. In some cases, these are similar to the problems associated with long COVID, such as fatigue, shortness of breath, digestive distress, and brain fog. Some experts suspect that the inflammation the immune system musters to overcome an infection may be the source of such symptoms. There are differences among the viruses, though. Trouble with the senses of smell and taste are especially common and severe with long COVID. Human metanumovirus, on the other hand, can often lead to a cough that lasts for a very long time. For years, people who experienced lasting, debilitating fatigue following an infection were not taken seriously. Now, thanks to long COVID, doctors are starting to recognize that a variety of viral infections can trigger long-lasting symptoms. People are living longer, much longer. Since 1950, the number of people who have celebrated their 100th birthday has doubled every decade. It's projected that over the next 30 years, the number of centenarians will quintuple. What are some of the factors associated with such longevity? Swedish researchers have been collecting biomarkers for 35 years with a focus on markers of metabolism and inflammation. They found that centenarians had lower levels of glucose, creatinine, and uric acid in their bloodstream. In addition, people who survived beyond their 100th birthday had higher levels of iron and cholesterol than people who never made it to that ripe old age. People who stop breathing periodically during the night have a condition called sleep apnea. This can lead to health problems such as daytime tiredness, slow reaction time, headaches, high blood pressure, and metabolic syndrome. Doctors treat sleep apnea with a device to provide continuous positive airway pressure, a CPAP machine. 
Now, one of the major manufacturers is in trouble with the FDA. The sound-dampening foam used in its design has a tendency to break down and emit fumes and hazardous particles into the air it's pushing into patients' airways. That problem is bad enough, but to make things worse, Philips Respironics failed to warn customers about the danger. An investigation by ProPublica showed that the company had received at least 3,700 complaints over more than a decade before taking decisive action in 2021. The FDA is critical of the company's response and has expressed skepticism that safety tests of the foam were adequate. The Danish pharmaceutical manufacturer Novo Nordisk has become one of Europe's most successful companies, thanks largely to its diabetes drug Ozempic and its weight loss medication Wegovi. Both contain the active pharmaceutical ingredient called semaglutide. Demand for the drugs has been soaring at an unprecedented rate. This has had a profound positive impact on Denmark's economy. With such enormous popularity, Researchers have also been learning about potential side effects of these medications known as GLP-1 agonists. An analysis of data for 16 million patients from the Pharmetrics Plus database compared adverse effects of GLP-1 agonists to those of other unrelated weight loss drugs like bupropion naltrexone, known by the brand name Contrave. GLP-1 agonists were far more likely to cause gastrointestinal complications, including pancreatitis, bowel obstruction, and stomach paralysis, known as gastroparesis. A new study compared the nasal spray esketamine, Spravato, to an older antipsychotic drug, quetiapine, Seroquel. Results published in the New England Journal of Medicine show that the group getting esketamine fared better than those on quetiapine. Long-term results also favored esketamine. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. You've probably heard that soft drinks with lots of sugar or high-fructose corn syrup aren't healthy. For decades, millions of people have turned to artificial sweeteners like aspartame in their beverages instead. The attraction is sweetness without calories. But are such sugar substitutes better for your health? To help us answer this question, we turn to Dr. Barry Popkin. He is the W.R. Keenan Jr. Distinguished Professor at the Gilling School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Popkin established the Division of Nutrition Epidemiology at UNC. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Barry Popkin. I'm pleased and honored to be back. Dr. Popkin, you have done quite a bit of research on the harm that can be caused by consuming sugar-sweetened beverages, which, of course, are extremely popular, not just in the United States, but around the world. Could you please summarize for us what are the problems with soda of that sort? There, there are two sides to look at the sugar-sweetened beverage problem, be it in carbonated or fruit drinks or whatever. It's on the one hand, when whatever we drink doesn't affect what we eat. So for every calorie we drink, 
uh, that's not a healthy calorie, like a sugar-sweetened beverage instead of, for example, milk or just plain water, which is, of course, the healthiest, along with milk for young kids, it would be you gain calories. So that's the first problem. The second problem is sugar has some profound effects on our metabolism, which in turn leads to a rapid increased risk of diabetes and hypertension and a number of other problems that are, affect our system. Now, when you mention calories, you know, people think, oh, calories, they're all the same. But there's a huge difference between drinking your calories in the form of a soft drink that has goodness knows how many teaspoons full of sugar and eating, for example, uh, a pasta salad with various vegetables in it. Right. We didn't really know about this problem and this issue until around 20 to 30 years ago when scientists started discovering that what you drink, whether it's milk instead of eating cheese, whether it's juice rather than drinking just the, the watermelon or the orange, um, they add all these extra calories, but we don't replace them when we eat during that day. So if we drink three Cokes in a day, which is kind of the American average, we're adding five, 600 calories a day to our diet. And it's just extra calories. It's led to not only the problems I mentioned from sugar, the, the obesity, the kidney disease, the fatty liver disease, but also it's just increasing our risk of overweight and obesity significantly and through that pathway, many, many diseases. And what you're suggesting then is that our brains don't register. If the calories come in through a beverage, our brains just don't say, oh, wait, you've had enough calories. Stop That's right. Now. And it's quite surprising. Nobody ever even looked at it. Now, you mentioned fatty liver. And most people don't think about fatty liver. They don't think about their livers. But let alone fatty liver, why is that a problem? Well... We've had an epidemic of fatty liver disease in this country, particularly because of all that sugar-sweetened beverages. And it not only harms the liver, but it affects our whole metabolism and in turn just increases our risk of heart disease, of cancer, many other things. So now, Americans love the idea of having their dessert and eating it too. The concept that, well... We can solve this sugar problem with artificial sweeteners. Case closed. And there's now quite a bit of controversy surrounding aspartame. Is it or is it not a carcinogen? There have been questions for decades about some of the other artificial sweeteners. Can you give us an overview of your perspective on the solution, as it was presented to us for decades, of artificial sweetness. So for decades, we shifted. And we had a huge shift in the U.S. around 2000, 2001, and two when people heard about the problems of sugar in beverages and how they were affecting our health. They shifted to diet sweetener. And then they shifted to water among the high educated because they start hearing maybe the problems with diet sweeteners. 
at that point, we really didn't have scientific evidence to note any real problem. Every random controlled trial on diet sweeteners has found no effect or positive effect on weight loss. It's only in the longitudinal studies they pointed out problems, and that was one side to it. More recently, we've had another issue that's come forward on ultra-processed foods. We've learned that this category of highly processed foods, which would include diet beverages, really together is a major cause of so many diseases, mental health, cancers, cancer mortality, heart disease mortality, all-cause mortality, and mental health issues. So we have begun to move away from ultra-processed foods, and that would include diet sweeteners. Whoa, wait a minute. Go into any fast food place, go into any gas station in America, go into any supermarket in America. There are so many ultra-processed foods, and they are readily available. That They're just sitting out in front yelling at you, buy me, I taste delicious, crunch, crunch, salt, salt, sugar, sugar. But it's actually often artificial sweeteners as well. Yeah. Not only in the beverages, but increasingly in the food supply in America, they're putting it into food. We showed in one study 5-8% of what we eat has dyed sweeteners added in the food supply, not just in the beverages we consume. Including some foods that, you know, have previously been considered healthy choices like yogurt. So you go to the yogurt aisle and you see your your flavored yogurt and it says no sugar. Well, it does have sweetener in it. That's exactly correct. And once they put the sweetener in, the products usually are much more highly processed and put that in as a component of a of of really pulling apart the food, pulling apart the milk and other things in that, and reconstituting it. So these foods with diet sweeteners are 99% reconstituted in many ways, and that's what makes them help the process. And the additives they add and the, the flavors and the colors are, make these foods much more palatable than the normal plain yogurt, for example. So we could use a diet sweetener, for example, as a marker of this is a processed food. Look for an alternative that doesn't have this stuff in it. Exactly. And it would be much healthier than we can imagine. May have a few extra calories. said than done. (laughs) And our children, I mean, Barry, you and I are old enough that there were no such things when we were growing up. You know, it was it was just sugar. That's all there was as a sweetener or honey, something natural. But children today are exposed to this food from the very earliest ages. Right. If you have formula, most of the formula today in this country doesn't need to do this, but they add sugar. It's not required. They add it because all the requirements for formula are basic minimums of certain key nutrients and other things. So they add it because mothers taste it. It tastes better. The toddler milks are laden with it. All the toddler processed foods have sugar added in one sort or another. And it's really enhanced the sweetness preference from the time you're born. So does this 
pervert our children's, um, as you say, preferences for, for, for foods? Absolutely. Yes, and those preferences that are we start with when we're born live with us, and we grow more preferences, but we typically then have a higher sweet preference throughout our whole life. I would like to ask about aspartame specifically. It's one of the um, big artificial sweeteners, and there's recently been some controversy over whether or not it should be considered a cancer-causing chemical. What's your interpretation of the data? So this is from the International uh, Agency for Cancer Research in France. And this began in the early 2000s, the 2003 to 8 period, when a group called the Ranzini Institute had these studies our, we sent over that showed cancer in these in these mice from consuming aspartame. We sent over from our National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences a team of four people. They never published their report, but I got hold of it and read it. And that report showed that they were feeding these mice 10 times their weight in aspartame per day. They were giving them so much that anybody, given that amount of any kind of special artificial item, would get cancer. And the studies they count, they said were really fraudulent. They the designs were bad. So, but that was in the background. And in the two thousands, the and the IARC, this cancer research group, always kept watching for aspartame. They've never had real good evidence. What they had was three longitudinal studies that had slight different effects when you had consumed a lot of aspartame. One of these was from the health professionals studies that you've talked to Walt Willett and many others from Harvard often about. And they found only in diabetics, in three diabetics, an increased risk of cancer. So they, after that, they decided to say there might be a risk because they've been pushing for a really long time to find anything to say about aspartanes. And in general, they're pretty much against non-nutritive sweeteners, but haven't had evidence to even say anything was potentially that. But the WHO didn't accept it, didn't change its guidelines. The US FDA looked at the research and the data and the report from them and didn't accept it. Our guidelines have not changed in the amount of of aspartame, which is very important. It's used in equal, NutraSweet, and it's used in most of the beverages, mainly because it has no flavor. It's highly sweet, 200 times sugar, the sweetness level, but it no flavor. So it's easy to put in any product. So most of our foods like to use aspartame rather than other sweeteners where they have to adjust the flavors and so forth. So, Dr. Popkin, what would you recommend for new mothers and fathers when they have a, a toddler? And there are so many tempting foods and beverages that contain sweetness, either sugar or artificial sweeteners. How do we begin to, in a sense, wean our young people away from this addiction? And I use that word cautiously to a sweet flavor? Well, first off, 
breast milk has a little bit of lactose in it, but it's minor, and it's really not that sweet. And if you can breastfeed, obviously that's the, the choice to go ahead with. And there are many formula that don't have a lot of added sugar. So read the label. Read the label once to know which ones fit what you want. Of course, there are kids with many, many different allergies and problems, and those formula typically don't have much sugar. So, But then once you wean the child off of the formula, they can drink regular milk. They can eat regular vegetables. You can strain them and, and grind them and make them healthy, and that's by far the healthiest way to go for toddler food. If you don't have the time, there are many toddler foods that don't have with vegetable and vegetable meat mixes that don't have much added sugar. And you just have to look for those and you'll find them and there'll be certain brands and then you go with them. So, but the problem is it's our low-income mothers who are not only giving their kids the formula, but mainly because of the huge advertisement, not for formula, but for toddler milks, low-income Americans particularly blacks and Hispanics, are increasingly giving their kids these toddler milks instead of formula, and they're full of sugar. And they're giving them that because they, they're told by the ads they're healthy for you, and they're not. But the ads are allowed on anything other than formula, and we go ahead and see them. And they make the packages of toddler milk look identical to the formula packages, so they sell it. It's they started in the U.S., and then they went to Europe. They found it worked, and then they took the model to the low- and middle-income world, and it's an explosive product for these companies. It's growing that rapidly. Dr. Popkin, ever since artificial sweeteners became a thing, which is now, what, 30, 40, 50 years ago, they've been controversial. And... The issue of, well, do they cause cancer? Do they have other kinds of health problems? It remains controversial to this day. We had an opportunity to talk with Dr. Eli Elinoff in Israel, who has done some interesting work, and he has suggested that the artificial sweeteners can affect the probiotic, not can affect. Your microbiome. The microbiome. Mm -hmm. He has suggested that the artificial sweeteners affect the microbiome. What do you think? It's correct. He did one of the largest studies we'll ever see in the world, the microbiome, where he took a 1,000 people and followed them. And out of that, laid out what he found. It was a very important study. Subsequently, we've seen many pathways by which not only artificial sweeteners, but all ultra-processed foods affect our whole brain, our neurology, all the way through. The mechanisms of these foods all the way through our system are now understood to show how powerful they are as ultra-processed foods and impacting us impacting our flavors, our taste, but effectively impacting our health in such profound, adverse ways. Now, when we were studying, the word microbiome was not part of our vocabulary. 
today is everywhere. Why is it important? It's important because it creates the bacteria that help us with digestion, that help us with many, many things, and feed back into our whole metabolic system. So it's part of the whole basic regulatory system that we now understand. And particularly microbiome in the gut has been studied the most. They're also studying in other organs, but that's been the most important because that's really part of our regulatory system. Dr. Popkin, you and your colleagues have looked a lot at um, what would be healthy food choices. So can you share some guidelines with us, please? Well, the ideal thing to do is to to eat as much real food as you can afford to in terms of your time and your budget. Unfortunately, they can cost more in many locations, but you can also eat the frozen food. It's equally as healthy, and it has no change in nutrient composition, particularly increasingly with the flash freezing they're doing for many, many foods. So that's cheaper. Uh, you can eat the, the other. The, they're also in supermarkets and markets all over, packaged processed foods you can buy that have no not, nothing added. They're just essentially like the way Bolt made the little miniature carrots that revolutionized carrot consumption in this country. There are increasing numbers of packaged spinaches and other things which makes it easier to use and cuts down your time costs. And then on top of all that, the frozen food Fruit and vegetables are wonderful, and they're very cheap. Every time we talk with someone in this field, they say real food, but they never define it. So what's the difference between real food and all the other stuff? So it's the difference between taking an orange and orange juice. The orange gives you fiber and many more nutrients. The orange juice, on top of how once you've squeezed it and done all that, you lose some nutrients to the air through oxidation, but you don't get the fiber. Even if they say they put in there some of the pulp and other things, it really doesn't give you the fiber that the fruit gives you. And you lose a lot of nutrients in the whole process. So by the time you're done, if you drink what you could eat, it's really not that healthy. Now, I would like to ask about some of the research that you have been doing at the policy level. Are there things that governments can do to help their citizens make those healthy food choices we've just been talking about? Yes. And in fact, in the U.S., as an example to start with, during COVID, we gave extra money to both SNAP and WIC people for fruits and vegetables. Now, purchase. SNAP and WIC, explain, please. The, the food stamp program and the supplemental program for mothers and infants. Thank you. And they got extra money, and it worked. It increased their purchases and their consumption of fruits and vegetables. We're working with the government overseas, and they're going to put in a tax, and the tax money is going to be used for a subsidy to give low-income people a card and put on that on their on their bank card that they all use to add to it cash each month for certain fruits and vegetables they can buy in certain selected markets and that are all adjacent to each community. And, and what will be taxed? The tax will be ultra processed food. Okay. And so 
they will do one and use it for the other. And we have a second country that wants to see the results of our pilot that we're finishing this spring, and then we'll use the same results to do it in their country. So there are some countries truly interested in the welfare of the poor and worried that all these taxes and other things are not making them healthy. Uh, so they're they're moving to these kind of solutions. And I think it, once we show it works and is impactful, it'll explode. Dr. Popkin, when a pharmaceutical company wants to get a medication approved to, for example, lower cholesterol or lower blood sugar, they have to do a study that might last several months, in certain cases, maybe even a year or two, just as long as they show what we call a surrogate marker, a biomarker. Oh, yeah, cholesterol came down to 30, 40 points. Blood sugar is now down. Case closed, drug approved, and it might cost $1,000 a month. The idea of doing a study with food is like you can't see a benefit in three weeks, six months. It may take two or three years or longer to see the long-term benefits. How do we begin to sort of change the way we think about food as medicine and the kind of research that's necessary? That's a really complex issue. We have a lot of research going into what kind of foods can be used for what kind of organs and what impact. But the reality is we don't have solutions to that yet. We don't know how to get individuals. And we have an enormous population. After all, not only do all Americans consume at least 60% ultra-processed food from their diet, but the overweight and obesity levels in this country are soon going to encompass three-fourths of the population. So we're really at a serious point where we need solutions. But to this state, we have, and I'm very skeptical that we'll ever get the kind of evidence to show food as medicine can truly make an impact except on a few individuals. And that's not the approach we need in America if we want to deal with our problems of diet-related noncommunicable diseases. Of course, the pharmaceutical industry says, well, we've got drugs. Yes, there's an obesity problem, but all you need is Ozempic and Wegovy because you just inject it once every two weeks and problem solved. That is correct for a, a subpopulation, but the cost are enormous. You have to have really good health insurance to be able to cover those costs. And for low- and middle-income people, they don't have that. And so it's really going to limit its benefits quite a bit. On the, at the same time, you have to take the Wegovy all your life. And that is a cost that's astronomical. Now, it pays if you have diabetes, hypertension, many other things, and the cost of the diseases and the operations is enormous that you need for all your non-communicable diseases. But for other individuals, no. It's a, just a very horrendous life sentence to getting a, a shot, or pretty soon there'll be an over-the-county version of one of the, or both of those same drugs. But they're enormously expensive. 
And of course, we've been talking about the cost in terms of dollars and cents, but there's also a a fairly non-trivial cost in terms of side effects. Yes, there are on both of those. And that, again, is part of the problem. Those side effects can't be prevented. These are powerful drugs. And when you have such power that affects our metabolic system as they do, you can't control the side effects. Dr. Popkin, I hope that you'll tell us a little bit about uh, your work in Mexico and also in Chile. These two countries have adopted different approaches. Can you tell us what they've done and how it's worked? Right. I'll start with Mexico. First, Mexico put in attacks on sugar-sweetened beverages and on non-essential foods. The tax on sugar-sweetened beverages was 10% and the non-essential foods 8%. We did a paper that came out evaluating with my Mexican colleagues leading that showed a significant reduction in consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages linked with the tax after the first and the second year. Within around four years, 44 countries had adopted that based on that evidence that it worked. And we have now close to 48, 49 countries and a number of subunits like Catalina, one part of Spain or cities in the U.S. that have these taxes. So the taxes work. They work equivalent with the size of them. Uh, Chile, on the other hand, went a different route initially. They put a warning label on all food, which was high in added sugar, added sodium, added saturated fat. And if it was high in any of those, high in energy density, the amount of calories in 100 grams. And then you couldn't see those advertised on children's shows the first time around, and you couldn't see, have them in schools if they had a warning label on them. Uh, we showed profound adverse impact. Chile was the highest sugar-sweetened beverage-consuming country at the time of the study, and it dropped 23% after the first year. Subsequently, we showed that the advertising shifted to shows, shows that children watched that were adult shows. So the total ban on advertising was put in, and it doubled the loss of impact doubled the size of the ads covered and lowered by half, again, the exposure of children. So there was a a combination effort. The foods were labeled prominently so that any consumer would know this food is not your best choice. Exactly. And also, the um, advertising regulations prevented advertising these these particular foods that were so labeled on television. And the impact was huge there in that we're just going to be publishing an impact from a couple years later, pre-COVID, the last year before COVID, and it shows a bigger impact. But the main point was within, again, five years, Israel was the first to adopt it, then a number of Latin American countries. South Africa, within another six months, will have adopted it. Uh, and a number of countries in Asia and Latin America and Africa are considering it. The same warning labels that have spread around many countries in Latin America. Canada has also adopted the same approach. So we're left out. However, our FDA and the U.S. 
will be doing a huge study on the warning labels versus other labels for front of the package labeling, and we'll be coming out with results of that in a year or two. So I've got an idea. What happens if you combine these two concepts, a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages and or other harmful foods together with warning labels? What would be the impact? That's what we're going to know from Colombia. So Colombia followed on and they instituted a tax that starts at 10% this November and goes up to 20% in 2025 November. And on top of that, they have the warning labels on the food and they've taxed the warning label food and beverages. And we'll learn about that. And I suspect that'll be the the way many, many countries will go. And what we're trying to work with is these countries, to, when they institute the tax, to give part of it as subsidies to low-income people so they are benefited by being able to buy healthier food. Dr. Barry Podkin, thank you so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Barry Popkin, the W.R. Keenan Jr. Distinguished Professor of Nutrition at the Gilling School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He established and led the UNC Interdisciplinary Obesity Center. After the break, we'll talk more about substitute foods like sweeteners or margarine that didn't turn out as well as we might have hoped. We'll talk with Dr. Walter Willett from the Harvard School of Public Health to find out how we took a wrong turn towards low-fat and non-fat foods. Replacing fats with refined starch and sugar has caused a lot of dietary mischief. Discouraging people from eating fat pretty much took nuts, seeds, and vegetable oils off the table. Olive oil plays a starring role in the Mediterranean diet. What should we know about it? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoa flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia. And remember that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Cardio Health is offered in both convenient capsule and powder formats, with each serving containing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols to support heart health. More information at cocovia.com. 
We're talking today about the idea that foods could be modified to make them healthier. It's kind of like the DuPont Company's motto of better living through chemistry, but applied to food. We have been disappointed in this huge experiment. We've just discussed the pros and cons of the artificial sweetener aspartame. What about other food ingredients that were supposed to be an improvement on tradition? How well is that working out? Nutrition experts sometimes advise us to eat real food. But how do you know if the food on your plate is real or fake? And what difference does it make for your health? To find out, we're talking now with Dr. Walter Willett. He's a physician, an epidemiologist, and professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He served as chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard for 25 years. Much of his work has been on the development of methods to study the effects of diet on the occurrence of major diseases. Dr. Willett is the author of several books, including Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Walter Willett. Good to be with you again. It's always wonderful to hear your voice, Dr. Willett. And I I guess our first question has to do with, with the promises that have been made. Because there was a time when we were told, if you just substitute margarine for butter, there'll be no cholesterol and it'll reduce your risk of heart disease. And then along came all those artificial sweeteners, and we were told, if you just drink beverages and eat candy with artificial sweeteners and no calories, no problem with weight. You'll shed pounds, and the obesity epidemic will disappear. It seems like both promises didn't work out quite that way. Uh, That's right. Uh, Unfortunately, there probably should have been some attachment to those promises saying that's our best guess given the evidence we have now, and that's not much evidence. And so I think uh, because there was no qualification, a lot of people were uh, understandably disappointed, and there's indeed loss of credibility, and that's serious. Well, Dr. Willett, one of the one of the big pushes in the 1980s in particular, and even into the 90s, was people were really trying to limit their fat. So they would go to non-fat milk, a low-fat cheese, you know, non-fat this and non-fat that. And low-fat yogurt. I mean, still, if you go to the dairy section, you'll find an awful lot of no-fat, low-fat yogurt. And people seem to think, well, we're doing something good for well, ourselves. In fact, nonfat options are still pretty popular, and some people are being advised to, you know, choose nonfat options. Is that good advice? Well, unfortunately, it's overly simplistic. And you're absolutely right. During the 80s and 90s, uh, the main dietary advice. The number one uh, thing to keep in mind was avoid fat. And I was worried about that even at that time because there really wasn't evidence that that was beneficial. Now, I don't think there was a conspiracy about it. It was good intentions uh, that were behind that, but they were wrong. And uh, there should have been greater caution about recommending low-fat everything. Uh, 
we had some suggestion at that time and subsequently a lot more evidence that the type of fat is really important, not the total amount of fat in the diet. There are, there are some really bad fats. Trans fats, the worst. Fortunately, that's really literally off the table now as of 2018. Uh, and too much saturated fat is not good for us either. But the uh, more unsaturated plant oils actually are beneficial. Uh, that's really been known for quite a while. But again, we have a lot more evidence. So we've cleaned up the fat in the U.S. food supply quite a bit. Uh, the trans fat, again, our, our trans fats are gone. There's a reduction in saturated fat. Blood cholesterol has come down and unsaturated fats have gone up. And that's a lot of the reason we're living 10 years longer now than we were back in the 1960s because heart disease rates have gone down dramatically. But if we replace fat with refined starch and sugar, that's not going to be good. And that could be actually worse than having uh, many most types of fat in the diet. What are the consequences of that? Well, the problem is if we replace unhealthy fats like uh, uh, most liquid plant oils, olive oil, soybean oil, with refined starch and sugar, uh, we're losing the benefits of those unsaturated fats. And those are real benefits. Plus that the large amount of refined starch and sugar has very serious adverse effects. It, uh, it exacerbates what we call the metabolic syndrome, uh, essentially low HDL, high triglycerides, uh, fatty liver disease, uh, increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. So there's lots of adverse effects of overloading our, our system with refined starch and sugar. As we understand it, the WHO made a controversial recommendation a little while ago about fat. What can you tell us about that? Right. This was really deja vu. It was like going back to the 1980s and 1990s when all fat was considered bad because they said keep total fat 30% of calories or lower. And that's what the recommendation was uh, several decades ago. And again, uh, the unfortunate thing was uh, uh, people largely replaced that fat with refined starch and sugar. Now, what was behind this WHO recommendation, uh, basically it was one meta-analysis that's been repeated over time by one group in the United Kingdom looking at the effect of dietary fat on weight change. And th th so the recommendation was based purely on expected benefits on weight. But uh, in, absurdly, in this meta-analysis, they initially threw out and ignored all studies that were actually designed to look at that issue, the, the effect of dietary fat on body weight. And there have been in recent years some really good studies that have not supported the benefit of fat reduction on body weight, and those were all ignored. And even if you believe what they came up with in the meta-analysis, it was the benefit for reducing fat intake was less than one kilogram, only about two pounds, uh, which actually is, uh, I think as everyone would realize, not very a strong effect on which to base global dietary recommendations. Dr. Will, I'd like to talk a little bit about olive oil. We, we've talked about this in the past, and I think you're quite familiar with the 
the nurses' health study and the health professionals' follow-up study. And, and there was a publication in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology uh, back in 2022 in which they were looking at olive oil and, and the impact on these health professionals. And here's what they concluded. Compared with those who never or rarely consume olive oil, those in the highest category of oil, olive oil consumption, and that was seven grams per day, which is about a half a tablespoon, had 19% lower risk of total and cardiovascular disease mortality, 17% lower risk of cancer mortality, 29% lower risk of neurodegenerative mortality, and 18% lower risk of respiratory mortality. It sounds like just a little bit of olive oil was beneficial. Uh, yes, I, in fact, was a co-author on that study. And that's not surprising that olive oil is beneficial, especially when it's replacing other calories in the U.S. diet, which are mostly pretty unhealthy calories. And this wasn't surprising either because we've known for many years that the populations consuming olive oil is the main type of fat in their diet. The Mediterranean countries have a, a greatly reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, other conditions compared to people in Northern Europe who are eating margarine and animal fats uh, during that period of time. And I think we can also uh, be very comfortable about the safety of olive oil because civilizations have been consuming that in large amounts for thousands of years. And we know that olive oil, and it turned out in that study, we also saw the similar effect with other liquid plant oils, uh, that, that they will reduce LDL cholesterol and have other good metabolic effects. Now, you mentioned the, about half a tablespoon. That was the minimum amount. More people, of course, were consuming larger amounts of olive oil. So it's not that we're talking about just adding olive oil on top of everything else we're already eating, but it's using that to replace other types of fat and perhaps some uh, some of the calories from refined starch and sugar as well. That It's that replacement that's really beneficial. Well, Dr. Willett, as you just mentioned, half a tablespoon of olive oil, it's not very much. So do those of us who have consumed already in the course of, uh, you know, half a day, uh, two or three tablespoons, do we need to worry? <laughs> no, um, I don't think we need to worry. And that's uh, perhaps about what I'm uh, usually having consumed by about this time of the day, uh, that we know from the studies done in Greece and the other Mediterranean countries back in the 1960s that people were getting close to 30% of their calories from olive oil at that time. And that gives me a lot of reassurance about the safety because they were consuming that for decades and decades, thousands of years, actually, and at that time had the longest life expectancy in the world. So I think we can be confident about the safety uh, because of that really long-term experience. One of the questions that we get from our listeners is, what kind of olive oil, and how can I be sure that it really is the right kind of olive oil? In other words, is there adulteration in the olive oil market? Um, for thousands of years, again, there has been adulteration of, of olive oil in the market, I think. I think it's probably under better control in the United States now. I'm not aware of 
uh, adulteration at this point in time. Uh, but there's a temptation to do that, of course, because if you put some cheap industrial oil in there, it, it will cost less. Uh, but um, I think there would be serious problems at this point in time with enough awareness about this if, if there was uh, any substantial adulteration. Now, there's still an issue. Is extra virgin olive oil uh, better than uh, more refined olive oil? I, it probably is, but we actually don't have really hard data that's compared mm -hmm. extra virgin head-to-head -head with a ref more refined olive oil. It's it's possible that, and in fact, probable that there's some added benefit of extra virgin olive oil because it's more than just the type of fat that's present. It's many phytochemicals, antioxidants, uh, other uh, components of olive oil that can have beneficial effects above and beyond the, the unsaturated fats in olive oil. Now, Dr. Willett, I think a lot of people go, okay, I, I kind of get the idea that I could use olive oil in my salad dressing, sure, but what about cooking with it? Um, you know, I, I've heard that if it's overheated, it might break down, it won't be safe. How do the Willets use olive oil in the kitchen? Uh, for everything, pretty much. Uh, sometimes we use a different kind of oil for um, other flavors, but uh, olive oil is what we use for cooking uh, in salad, uh, with bread, uh, pretty much everything. Uh, and that idea that it breaks down with cooking is really not true. It's, in fact, one of the most stable oils uh, that we have. Uh, sometimes with extra virgin olive oil uh, put in a frying pan, there can be a little bit of smoke uh, from some of the particles that are in little bits of the flesh of the olive oil, uh, of the olive itself. Uh, and in general, though, we don't want to uh, burn our oils, uh, any type of oil. Uh, uh, but compared to other oils that we might use for frying and things like that, uh, olive oil is actually very stable. Now, in the study that I quoted that you are a co-author on, they're talking about things other than just, and I say just in quotes, cardiovascular mortality. They're also talking about cancer. They're also talking about neurodegenerative mortality. So, does olive oil have some anti-cancer and maybe anti-dementia ability? Um, I think it probably does. This is really at sort of the cutting edge of research, but we followed up that particular publication with another study looking specifically at cognitive decline and fatal dementia. And we did see lower risks of fatal dementia with people who consume more olive oil. Uh, also, in the Predimed study, a big randomized trial in Spain where people were given a Mediterranean diet with extra virgin olive oil, there was a reduction in cognitive decline in that study for people with the extra virgin olive oil compared to a low-fat diet, along with lower cardiovascular disease risks and uh, lower uh, risk of type 2 diabetes. So uh, it, I think there's a lot of evidence pointing in that direction that uh, that's, uh, olive oil itself is probably part of the overall healthy Mediterranean diet that's related to better cognitive function as well as lower cardiovascular disease. Well, Dr. Willett, one of the huge advantages of the studies that you've been running for all these decades 
the nurses' health study, the nurses' health study too, the health professionals' follow-up study, you have a lot of people and you have followed them for a long time. And the PREDIMED study, which was originally a randomized controlled trial in which people were assigned to specific diets, the original results were published almost 10 years ago. But now the researchers have had a chance to follow these people up. Are the results more or less consistent with what you're seeing in the U.S.? Uh, right. The results are very consistent. Actually, one of the motivations for doing the PREDIMED study was that in our study, in the Nurses' Health Study and Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, we were seeing a benefit of the Mediterranean dietary pattern here in the U.S. And uh, that was partly the motivation for launching the PREDIMED randomized trial. Uh, and the trial itself, as you say, actually had to be stopped uh, before it was uh, planned to be ending because there was this uh, advantage in the uh, olive oil and uh, nut groups compared to a low-fat diet, and it was deemed unethical to continue the study. So it uh, ended with uh, several years shorter than it was planned, but the investigators have continued to follow the group, and that overall that dietary pattern has persisted to be associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease and other, other outcomes as well. You're listening to Dr. Walter Willett, Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He served as chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard for 25 years. Dr. Willett is the author of several books, including Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. After the break, you'll hear about the advantages of following a Mediterranean-style diet. What does that mean? The Mediterranean is a pretty big place with a lot of differing culinary traditions. Lots of people have misconceptions about the foods that might belong in a Mediterranean diet. If you're plucking fettuccine Alfredo out of the freezer case, that might not be the best example of the Mediterranean diet. How can we fill our plates with real food from that part of the world? Dr. Willett will offer his advice on how you can choose a diet to help you stay healthy in years to come. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory Plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function. More information at cocovia.com. Many health professionals are now promoting a Mediterranean style of eating. But what does that mean? Some companies promote their processed fast foods as if they were part of a Mediterranean pattern. 
but people in Italy, Spain, and France would be shocked to see what Americans have done to their traditional cuisine. How can you differentiate between real and fake food? Our guest today is Dr. Walter Willett, professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He served as the chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard for 25 years. Dr. Willett is the author of several books, including Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy, and the textbook, Nutritional Epidemiology. Dr. Willett, we've been talking about the advantages of a Mediterranean dietary pattern, and our listeners have definitely heard a lot over the years about the Mediterranean diet. But I think a lot of us aren't completely clear on what that means. And it may mean different things in different parts of the Mediterranean. So what do you mean when you talk about a Mediterranean dietary pattern? Uh, That's a really good question because there's lots of flavors of the Mediterranean diet. And I usually talk about the traditional Mediterranean diet because if you look at what people in that part of the world are eating now, it's uh, pretty different. People have strayed fairly far from what the traditional diet was back in the 1960s when most of the original research was done on, on health effects of the Mediterranean diet. And uh, we've, we held a conference, actually it's about 30 years ago now, to look at the Mediterranean diet and health. And we spent a lot of time talking about what that really means, what the Mediterranean diet really means. And there's variations, but at the core of it uh, probably is olive oil being the primary source of fat in the diet. And secondarily, it would mean a wide variety of fruits and vegetables Traditionally, it also meant that the grains would be more whole grains and not really highly refined grains like in the contemporary U.S. diet. It meant also that most of the sources of protein were plant sources of protein, such as legumes uh, and nuts. Uh, So those would be, and I should add, uh, since that was the main source of protein, red meat and uh, dairy foods were relatively low. They weren't zero. It was, it's not a vegetarian diet, but the proportion of protein was coming much more from plant sources rather than animal sources. So those are the common elements uh, around the Mediterranean. Uh, and then there'd be variations, uh, different vegetables, uh, different fruits, uh, some having more fish, some less fish. And much of the Mediterranean diet uh, wine consumed in moderation was the traditional part, but in northern uh, Africa, like Tunisia, uh, uh, most of that was Islamic, and people were having a Mediterranean diet without alcohol. So again, quite a bit of variation, but some very important common elements. What are some of the misconceptions about the Mediterranean diet? Um, well, I think a lot of Americans now would think it means a lot of uh, meatball and pasta and things like that. Uh, that The Olive Garden, right? <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> yes. So that there's, um, there are lots of perversions, you might say, of the Medi- traditional Mediterranean diet. And that's why I put that adjective there, because uh, what you see advertised uh, today as Mediterranean diet is often not what the traditional Mediterranean diet really was. You know, one of the things that fascinates me is we have loved watching Stanley Tucci on his uh, travelogue through Italy, 
mostly from restaurant to restaurant, from market to market. And it just seemed like everything that he was gathering and all of the chefs he was talking to, these were natural, in quotes, real food. Whereas the typical American is going to shop in a supermarket and much of what they're buying is in the middle rather than around the edges. So how do we begin to think more like Stanley Tucci and the Italian diet, which is very compatible with what Americans like to think about, you know, rather than all of the ultra processed foods that have so many chemicals, we have no way of even pronouncing what they are. Well, that's uh, certainly true that there uh, in general in the traditional Mediterranean diet would be a much shorter connection between the food production and the table. And living in Rome for some time on sabbatical several decades ago, that was so clear that uh, virtually everything you could buy uh, would be, first of all, not very far away or a block or two away. There was lots of little markets all over the city, and most of it was uh, picked or harvested the day before or even early that morning. Um, and uh, that uh, first of all, it provides great flavor, freshness that uh, is a little bit, sometimes a little bit hard to reproduce in the United States, especially in the northern part where we have long winters. Uh, but uh, that it, it really was uh, across the board much less processed than we would find today in most supermarkets. Now, you and I share a common history in that we both grew up on dairy farms. And I think that to a certain degree, Americans have determined that there are problems with dairy. And so that's why we have, you know, low fat skim milk. My uncle would have uh, thrown up his hands in despair because for him, that was a sin. That just that wasn't real milk if it if it looked bluish it didn't count and the the full fat was always in the milk and on top um i'm just curious about if we were to follow dr walter willett into the grocery store and you were going to buy milk or yogurt or any other dairy product what are you buying these days well, first of all, I'm not buying a lot of those dairy products, and I think that's probably the most important thing, uh, that the, as you say, uh, our earlier years were traditional Northern European-type diets where dairy foods were really a, a major part of our total calories. And that tradition of high dairy consumption was basically... Uh, a survival technology that people could have food all year round when there were long, long months with no fresh fruits or vegetables, but you could have your cheese that you made during the summer uh, and you could be sometimes uh, milking uh, cattle or milking cows uh, much of the year. But as it turns out, that's not an optimal dietary pattern. And that's what was seen back in the 1960s is that dairy-centric diet uh, it provides a lot of saturated fat and cholesterol. Uh, of course, fewer fruits and vegetables than the traditional Mediterranean diet. So I think uh, it, it really is a matter of proportions. Uh, looking at the issue of both sustainability and health, 
uh, probably about one serving of dairy a day is, uh, I think, a good target to aim for. And if you're having just one serving a day, it's not going to matter from a health standpoint uh, much at all, whether it's full fat or low fat. But if we're having three or four servings of dairy a day, that's going to bring a lot of saturated fat. And dairy fat um, is not healthy compared to olive oil and the plant oil. So again, it's putting dairy uh, in, a, in a different proportion, and then we don't need to worry so much about the fat content. Dr. Willett, after all of these years of looking at what people eat and what their health outcomes are, I'm wondering if you have advice for our listeners on how each of us can choose a healthful diet that will have good health outcomes for us in the years to come. And I'm assuming that it doesn't all have to be the Mediterranean diet. I'm assuming there are ways to do this with, for example, if you prefer uh, Mexican flavors, if you prefer Caribbean flavors, if you prefer African flavors or Chinese flavors even. Are there ways to select our diets thoughtfully so that we'll be healthy later? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really important point. Uh, we've paid a lot of attention to the Mediterranean diet because it's been the best studied and we have the longest term evidence there. But because we've studied it so much, we I think have a pretty good understanding of what the healthy elements are. And they again, they include whole grains, uh, mostly unsaturated oils as a primary type of fat, plenty of fruits and vegetables, and small to modest amounts of animal sourced foods. And we can put those elements together with the flavors and foods of almost every traditional diet around the world, from Africa to Latin America to Asia. And um, that gives a lot of flexibility, which is good because uh, people do like variety. And uh, this type of dietary pattern can actually put to, be put together in probably thousands of different ways. Dr. Willett, when you and I were in graduate school many, many years ago, we almost never heard the term microbiome. I mean, we knew that what was in our digestive tracts represented, you know, bacteria and other biologics, but this was not the kind of buzzword that it is today. I understand that you are now focusing a bit more on the microbiome and I'd like to find out a little bit what you're researching, what you're looking into. And, and I would also like you to add a little postscript to that regarding artificial sweeteners, because we have had the opportunity to talk to a colleague of yours in Israel, Dr. Elanoff, who has studied um, some of those artificial sweeteners. And he says they actually may have a negative impact on the microbiome. So number one, what is it? And why are you interested in it? And what, if anything, do artificial flavors and, and, and sugar substitutes do to it? Right. The microbiome is really the collection of hundreds or thousands of different organisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi that live in different components of our body. Uh, the biggest component of the microbiome is the gastrointestinal tract, specifically the colon. And we've been interested in that actually since I started our work back in the 1980s, but we couldn't study it very well because we had to get fresh samples and culture them in many different ways. 
and my research team said if I wanted to collect more fresh samples of uh, of, of uh, feces, they were going to quit because we needed to get pretty good <laughs> amounts of it. So uh, we didn't do much for many years, but then the technology of um, uh, genotyping using modern genomic techniques came along, and we can now characterize what's there in the feces, uh, uh, the hundreds or thousands of different organisms using molecular techniques, and that's really opened up the microbiome research. So we're uh, collecting samples. We have several tens of thousands of samples from participants in our large cohort studies and are starting to look at this. We're still in the early stages of understanding the very complicated connections between what's going on there in our GI tracts. And it turns out not just colon cancer, which we've been most concerned about for obvious reasons, but it looks like the microbiome can influence our risk of diabetes and dementia and Parkinson's disease, so many other conditions. So uh, we're again, we're at the early stages of understanding that. And that leads me to be concerned about some of the artificial sweeteners that are being used, and particularly the sugar alcohols that are not absorbed, and they get down into our GI tracts uh, in large amounts the way they're being used now. And that is quite likely to disturb the environment there and alter the microbiome in ways that we don't understand. So it's not that we have hard data showing that there are specific adverse effects, but basically uh, changing the environment in a pretty major way, uh, changing the mix of organisms uh, is likely to do things that are going to be unexpected. So I think we need to be very cautious. And when you say sugar alcohols, you're talking about uh, sweeteners like sorbitol, maltitol, possibly erythritol? Exactly. Dr. Willett, we have two more minutes, and I would like to ask you about a new direction, more or less, that your research is taking. I know that you have become quite concerned about the connection between our diets and the changing climate. What should we be thinking about here? Uh, yes, that's where I'm spending a lot of my time now because it's become apparent that climate change is happening more rapidly than I think anybody expected a couple of decades ago. And I think we no longer need to be have a hard time convincing uh, people that this is a serious threat to human health and well-being. And perhaps in the long run, much more important than cardiovascular disease or diabetes or all the things we've been studying because we can't have healthy people on a sick planet. And there are strong connections between what we eat and the environmental impacts of food. Uh, without going into all of the details, clearly the biggest problem is the high consumption of red meat in uh, Western countries and increasingly in many other countries as well. And the impact of uh, red meat, for example, on greenhouse gas emissions is somewhere around 150, 160 times per serving compared to the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from plant-based foods like soy and uh, beans and other, other legumes. So that's probably the single most important switch we can do. And putting it positively, every time we have a plant-based meal instead of red meat, we're helping save a tree in the Amazon. Our uh, 
food supply is all connected globally. So what we eat, our food choices, wherever you are, is going to have an impact across the world on climate change. Dr. Walter Willett, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Great to be with you again. You've been listening to Dr. Walter Willett. He's a physician, an epidemiologist, and professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He served as chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard for 25 years. Much of his work has been on the development of methods using both questionnaire and biochemical approaches to study the effects of diet on the occurrence of major diseases. Dr. Willett has written several books, including Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy, and the textbook Nutritional Epidemiology. We spoke earlier with Dr. Barry Popkin. He's the W.R. Keenan Jr. Distinguished Professor at the Gillings School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a special blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance all in one capsule. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,359. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have a regular access to information about our weekly podcast, so you can find out ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.